Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast where we bring the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. In this episode, we talk to Clark Ritchie, Chief Technology Officer and co-founder at FactGem. Clark has spent his career working with data, and he co-founded FactGem to help companies get more out of their data. Clark is passionate about freeing data from its constraints and breaking down data silos that hamstring good decision-making in today's business world. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast. And in all, always, I've got another great guest on. And today we have Clark Ritchie, who is the Chief Technology Officer at FactGem. Welcome, Clark. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Glad to have you on here. We, it took us a little while to actually get this on the schedule, but now we got you here and I'm excited to talk to you. You know, as always, Clark, you know, what I love to do is to just start off and understand, you know, what makes you you? Like, how did you end up as a CTO, you know, in, in kind of the data realm? Yeah. Tell us your story. Yeah, thank you. So I actually came into computer science out of the military. I was active duty in the United States Coast Guard. And coming out of the Coast Guard and computer science, I pretty naturally landed in a spot where I was doing a lot of government work. So I spent the majority of my career as a computer scientist, actually in the defense and intelligence spaces, primarily working for DOD and a lot of the big three-letter agencies as a, yeah. as a contractor for various companies. About prior to starting FactGem, I actually was the director of public sector sales engineering for a database company out of San Carlos called MarkLogic. Uh, again, mostly government, it is public sector, but really within them, primarily defense and intelligence. And that was a great background because it got me an opportunity to work with some of the largest, most complicated data systems on the planet and see how those things were being approached, what challenges there were, what techniques people were using, and so on. So that really got me thinking about a lot of stuff. And then almost seven years ago now, I got the opportunity to co-found FactGem with Megan Kwame, our CEO. And yeah, I jumped at that, and, and here we are. You live in D.C., right? I live just north of D.C., up in Westminster. Oh, okay. I lived for years up in Maryland, so I, I, I love the area between Connecticut and Georgia, outside the Beltway. It is definitely a great area. Well, I worked with a lot of people like yourself with that background, so I can, I can, and can definitely understand. And like, like you said, is I feel like my my experience consulting with the Department of Defense and other various agencies was a really good, you know, way to get into the technology area because they're using so many different things. I remember when I was, I actually worked for the U.S. Army for a little while as a contractor, and I mean, we were running the biggest email system on the planet, short of Yahoo, at that point in time, early two thousand. So it was a. It was a really good experience. They're doing great things. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Well, and so let's, so back to kind of what, why did you guys start FactGem? What problem were you trying to solve? Yeah, so it was an interesting collaboration. Again, our, our CEO, Megan, she came out of a sort of investment banking background. And as part of that, she was doing really large deals that required her to put together models that were often hundreds of spreadsheets. And she was frustrated with that and, and wanted to understand why isn't there a way where I can take all of these spreadsheets that are about the same thing and bring them together in one spot and understand the big picture. And she actually talked to a bunch of people in Silicon Valley and other places and they said, no, nah, that's just too hard, you can't do that. Around the same time, particularly while working at MarkLogic after, which is a, was a great database, you know, still is, but I saw that as the big data space was maturing and interesting tools are coming out, those tools are being targeted for the most part at engineers, at computer scientists. Yeah. And while that's great, there's a lot of things I felt there that if we worked a little harder on the product side, we could let data analysts, data scientists, line of business managers actually perform data operations themselves 
without having to have the time and the expense of having computer scientists do this. And we could let those people work on the really hard problems, not just the, I have a whole bunch of data, I need to manage it in a good and careful way at scale. So I wanted to see if we could tackle those. And so the two really came together. We could combine those. You know, now we're, we've been very focused on looking at the relationships between data, kind of like the LinkedIn for data, and helping people understand data within context, but in doing so in very rapid ways without having to employ big teams of engineers. It's super interesting. And I, and I think, you know, Clark, when you, when you talk about the getting, you know, different people into the data, you know, that's something that's come up before on the podcast and in talking to people. And, and I think it's a really, it's a really interesting topic because one of the things I've seen is for, you know, a lot of these companies out there to become more competitive and more, you know, move faster. You can't always have like the technical organizations, the engineers be like the translators, the high priests of data, right? You know, you, and so what, what happens is you get these, data silos like you know in the organization and so talk to me more about that because I know it's something you you've thought a lot about I mean way what are you seeing what do you think that you're seeing these kind of you know what's the right word I mean basically kind of disorganized data strategies in a lot of these companies I mean what what do you think is happening yeah so I mean, there's, there's a lot there so data silos in general I mean that's a part of it and I really we talk about a data silo we're typically talking about some some database some data warehouse that is essentially isolated, right? It has a narrow lens into a piece of the organizational or corporate data. And those were created for good reasons. They're often still very valuable. And, and they were created because if you look at the tools that IT has had for 50 years or so, at scale, that's kind of what you had to do. You had to separate things to be able to perform in the way you need to. But as I think about data silos now, I like to draw an analogy and say that in a lot of ways, data silos are like dinosaur fossils. And that is, if I want to understand, like I find a fossil and I want to understand, well, how did that dinosaur live? And what was its family structure? And why did they die out? I can get a lot of information by really analyzing that fossil, but I can't really see what did it eat. I can't understand the other things around it and the context and how it related to its world and other things. I might be to go and find other fossils in the nearby area, like a fossilized plant, and study that as well. But then I've got to do a whole bunch of more math and things to figure out, well, is it really contemporary to this other thing I found? And so I can kind of start to link things together, but it's really, really hard. Data silos are the same way. You're able to look at one thing, but you've lost all that context. And yes, maybe you can go to a different data silo and start to piece it back together, but it's super hard to do that. And it consumes a ton of time and resources and you lose data fidelity as well. It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I guess these things, they kind of naturally form, right? You know, I've talked in other contexts about, you know, Conway's law, like how, you know, is basically when people build applications, it reflects the organizational structure. And I, I think it it seems like even with data and how people use data, it's really reflective of the business structure. And that's really hard to overcome because there's this a natural pooling of data where people work together. Right. And that's been supported by the state of data storage and databases for the last 40, 50 years. It really mirrored that. You couldn't reasonably say, I want to have all the information together in one spot. I mean, people tried to do that the last five, six years or so with Hadoop data lakes, and they thought that would be the big answer. As we're clearly seeing now with what's happened with MapR and other companies, that wasn't the answer. Because all you've done now is create a different place, put a bunch of stuff, and a whole lot of really expensive engineers are now required to do things. But I think we can get there now. There's new technologies, and we can start to bring those big pictures together in ways that are cost-effective 
and give people that larger picture. You mentioned a concept there of data lake, so maybe take a little bit of a tangent there because I personally, that term comes up all the time. And even as a person in the field, I have a hard time pinpointing what that actually means. I mean, where does that term come from? And like, what do people mean when they say a data lake? Yeah, don't, don't feel about it. You're, you're not alone because I think, I think a lot of times people do use that term to kind of mean very ambiguous things. If you really sort of pin it down, it goes back to kind of the beginnings of the creation of Hadoop and the Hadoop file system. And that provided IT organizations with a very inexpensive, highly resilient way to, to store data on servers. I mean, I, I've seen implementations in the government where these, these exceed a petabyte. That's massive amounts of storage. So the, the thought was, hey, you know, these, these data warehouses we know are giving us silos. They're providing a, a keyhole into the organization's data. That's not ideal, but we can't really go, we can't put everything into a single data warehouse that the technology doesn't scale that way. What if we just dump everything into this ginormous sort of virtual file system? That seems like a great thing to do. And then it's kind of like the old South Park skit, you know, it's like step one, steal all the pants, step three, rule the world. There's that missing <laughs> step two that they had. They go, oh yeah, step one, data warehouse or data lake, Step three, problem solved. You know, what, what's step two? And then no one wants to talk about step two, and it's because step two involved getting a lot of very expensive engineers who are familiar with MapReduce and distributed file systems and so forth to write a lot of code to do something. And anything you want to change that, it's back to engineering. I've talked with people before that there's a... You know, there's kind of a sense that big data kind of failed and, and a lot of these efforts failed. And you, it, it sounds like what you're, part of what you're saying is that it was like a skills gap and like lack of, I don't know, like just kind of throwing technology at a problem instead of really like thinking through it. I mean, you, you feel like that's, that's basically what happened is that, you know, organizations like looked at a technology, read it in CIO magazine is like, hey, this will solve it for me. And then they realize it's a lot more complicated than they thought and they didn't have the skill sets to solve it. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. This happens, you know, I think, all, all, all the time, right? And Gartner has sort of the famous technology adoption curve with the trough of disillusionment and everything. And But yeah, I mean, so that was certainly happening at the same time. You had really smart people at really big corporations, again, like MAPR, who are saying, this is absolutely the right way to do it. And they had really smart people that explain it, and they had good tools. But if we, if we think back, and I'm not going to make any friends in my software engineering community saying this, but it's software engineers writing those tools that are designed to be used by other software engineers in a consulting job, and that's essentially a forever lock on software engineering. I'm gonna write a product, I'll create a product that's gonna force you to employ more software engineers to do stuff. It's great for software engineers, not necessarily so great for businesses. And that's what, you know, what, what people ended up seeing. It just became too expensive to do, and, and the market you know, is really starting to wake up to that and demand more agile, lower cost solutions. Yeah, that just wasn't being provided by, you know, by those companies and that technology. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I, and I guess that could be a whole different conversation. But I mean, where where you're getting into is like that's one of the hardest problems to solve about developing products and solutions in general, is they tend to be developed by a set of people who then design for themselves. And then, you know, and particularly in a lot of these, when you're solving this, the, the real audience where you start to make this data, you know, worth its weight in gold, it's not with the people writing code. It's with the people that are, you know, running the business and making business decisions. And But they're almost never involved in the actual implementation of these, right? 
So, you know, we have these organizations that have naturally over time, just because they're human and this is the way humans work, they're creating data silos. <laughs> they're dumping it in overpriced data lakes that aren't really working. I mean, I guess one thing, you know, based on, do you, do you think that the data lakes is coming up a lot in the kind of cloud era and you hear, you hear that a lot with some of the cloud vendors out there. Do you think that have some of these offerings in the kind of cloud world changed anything or are they really just exacerbating the problem you think? I think they're just really just exacerbating the problem by, by shifting the problem away from your service to, to theirs. I mean, think about it, they're, they're a fantastic way if you're Google or Microsoft or Amazon and you're selling server time, what better way to spin more dials on, on the server than saying, move all your data into my storage? That's great. And then, and then of course, they say, is, and, and now use my technologies, my Amazon Redshift or you know whatever that technology of choice might be, to then use, uh, look at your data. It's still a giant data lake. There's still tools built by engineers for engineers. They're still not super flexible. You're still taking context out of the data. I think that is starting to change them. Yeah, both Amazon and Microsoft, for example, uh, have in the last year released major graph-based database offerings that are starting to shift the needle on this and saying, yeah, you can still do it on our servers, but here's a technology that actually allows you to keep the context, to keep those relationships. And that's going to be really important going forward. I did notice that when I was, uh, and I want to get back to the whole relationships thing you were talking about, but I, I do remember when I went to, you know, Amazon AWS reInvent last year and, and just seeing, it's like, it is funny to see how there's a emphasis on getting that, that moving that data where literally they'll pull a truck up to your data center, or, you know, they'll have these, you know, on-premise devices, you know, these actual things that they that you will put in the data center, suck up all your data and you'll move it. That seems to be kind of shifting, like that's the cloud migration strategy is to like, I'm gonna suck up all your data and move it, which makes sense because the data is like the real heart and soul of the business. But as you're saying, like they're really only just now getting to the point where they may actually start solving problems with it as opposed to just dumping it from one place to another. Yep, and as I tell people, you know, I've worked with some really big organizations that say, hey, we're going to have this new cloud strategy and we're going to go to Amazon, for example, for all our big mission critical stuff. And, you know, you ask me, so what are you going to do when the region fails? And they go, oh, it's Amazon, it's not going to fail. No, no, look at the clock. About once a year, you get a regional outage. It might be an hour, sometimes it's like two days. And small businesses go out of business. And, you know, you might be really big, but when you call Amazon and and you're upset because, you know, your business is down because the region's down, they really don't care. You're not that big. Sorry. They know it's a problem. They're, they're going to fix it, but you've got to deal with it. And yes, there are multi-region failover strategies that you can you know, utilize, but you're now really racking up some server time. Yeah, people finally think starting to realize too, well, the cloud is great. It is not foolproof. Cloud servers go down, mistakes happen, and you have to have a strategy for dealing with that just as you do on your own servers. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. It doesn't, it's not like those problems go away. So you've been, you've been talking a lot about this idea of relationships and context, and I agree with you. I think that's really important. So talk to me a little bit more about what you actually mean there. So when you say retaining the context, retaining the relationships, what does that actually mean? Nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So if you're a retail company, for example, sure, you, you need to understand your customers and your products and your transactions and the information about your store and so on. But you can't look at each of those things in isolation. You can't, for example, just look at store traffic and understand, you know, how is the business really doing? You have to understand like, well, you know, who is shopping at the store and when and what are they buying? And even going further out, 
Is the weather impacting things on a certain day? What does inventory have to say about this? It's a big picture to really be able to understand the business in, in a deep way. And unfortunately, again, until recently, technology didn't allow you to do that. The great sort of irony of relational databases is they're no good at relationships, you know? And people think, oh, they're great. No, they're, they're not. They were really never designed to do that. I've actually worked on government projects where I looked at a big relational schema and I got very, very confused because I was new to the project and I saw that if you've ever looked at a relational diagram, you see, you know, tables, like little rectangles and lines drawn between them that represent joints. And there were no lines. And I asked the government project manager, I must be some, I'm doing something wrong, I'm very confused, there's, there's no lines. He says, oh yeah, yeah. Those were slowing things down, so we removed all of the foreign keys from the database. And that's the interesting telling thing. You, you can actually do that. And it still works because the relationships are kind of a lie we tell ourselves in a relational database. They don't really exist in there. They're a myth we all agree to believe in, but they don't work super well. So what do you do? <laughs> What's the way forward? Right. So personally, I, I think the... The advent of the stable, productized, you know, property-based graph is really, really a tipping point in the technology. It's not going to solve every problem. There are definitely problems you're still going to want to solve with a relational database or a columnar database. But when you really need to understand the context, understand how customers are related to products and transactions, we need to understand supply chains, for example, and how a supply side disruption is going to trickle all the way down to a product in the store, which could be hundreds of degrees of separation away. You have to have all of those materialized relationships that you can do analysis on and really understand what is happening at a, at a big picture scale. That's what property graphs really are, are all about, and there's a whole big movement in, in data science now to redo a lot of existing algorithms and work based on graphs now. I think it's really interesting because if you, and I'm not a data scientist, but if you look back on the original work, a lot of the, you know, the math, the original math, if you strip away the computer side of it, it's graph theory, right? It's how, how are things related? But then what happened was there was no way to implement that on the computer side, so we sort of flattened that out. Now people are going back and saying, let's put us back in graph theory. There's even some really big efforts happening to redo neural networking, because neural networks, for the most part of the six now, aren't actually graphs, they're flat table type structures. So it's a fascinating area of development. So let's pull that apart a little bit, and particularly for people that are not as familiar with those concepts. So when you say, when you say a relational database, I guess, you know, what, what we're talking about is you, you might have a table of sales data that and it might have a you know a column that's like customer that links to another table that has like the customer information i mean is that is that what we mean by you know people that don't aren't really dbas is that what a relational database is am i getting it right yeah absolutely if you think so i think a lot of people are familiar with excel or a spreadsheet so a table in a relational database looks like an excel spreadsheet it's, it's rows and columns right and it's just like you said if if those rows and columns represent information about a customer and then i want to understand things the customer bought, I have another sheet or another table that has information about the product. And then I have to find some way to connect those two things by taking like a product ID and putting it in the same row as a customer ID to indicate that these there's some relationship between those two things. Yeah. Okay. And now talking about the graph, I mean, when you actually say a graph database, talk to me about what, what, is it, what does it actually mean? I mean, what are we talking about? One of the things I love about a, a graph database is I think it's much more intuitive to people because it's much more natural in terms of the way we think. So, for example, if I were to ask you or any of, any of your listeners to, 
you know, explain your job or your business to me, you would probably not go to a whiteboard and start drawing me rows and columns and putting information into cells and tables. We don't really think that way. You'd probably start drawing some circles that represent, you know, people or places or products or insurance policies. And you talk about those and then you draw a line to something else to show, for example, that, you know, a customer has an account which can have an insurance policy associated with it, et cetera. Because that's kind of the way we think about things. We think about concrete entities, people, places, things, and how they relate to other things. That's a graph. Those circles and those lines with arrows on them, that's a graph. And it's a very powerful data structure for expressing these concepts and doing analytics on them. I think that helps to kind of go through that. Because, you know, I've even seen, I haven't been in the technology world for a long time. We tend to throw words around and then you find that people don't actually really know what they mean. And I mean, I think that's really helpful because, you know, fundamentally, you're absolutely right. It's like every time, you know, I do a lot of interviews for my job to like see if there are people that we want to bring on board. It's like literally one of the first things they ask is like, okay, well, you know, tell me about your organization. I'm literally drawing circles with lines in between them on the board because that's, that is how we think it's human relationships. And I remember we actually had, we had a guy on the podcast before that in education and he was, you know, drawing graphs to talk about social relationships and how that affected educational change and reform. I mean, it's just, when you put a, when you put a term like graph database on it, people are like, uh, I don't know what you mean, but all we're really talking about is relationship between things, people, whatever it is. It's representing that. Yeah, and it's great. It's one of the things I love most about it because I, I can go to a prospect or a customer I work with and I can, I can show anyone in, you know, of your listeners yourself the most complex models that we've done in a graph to represent a business. And I can just put it there and walk away, and you can look at it, and you will immediately understand what's happening. You go, oh, yeah, customers make transactions that have line items and products, and those transactions occur to store. If I do the same thing with a relational database or a columnar, that's voodoo. I mean, I've even created some myself in the past and come back to them three months later and looked at them and go, wow, I have no idea what I did here. Because they're complicated, and you have to have a de- like basically a degree in engineering to understand them. These you don't. They're very accessible. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. So, like, going back to kind of where you originally, you know, started this is kind of what you're saying is that, you know, part of this transition to breaking down the data silos and making, you know, these lakes or ponds or whatever of data that you've got, you know, spread around here useful is to take this concept of a graph or taking these relationships. So what, what does that actually practically mean? What are you actually doing to make that data useful? That's right. It's breaking down those barriers. It's letting the people who understand the business best, whether that's at the C-suite or at the someone who runs a line of business or a business analyst, it's letting them essentially go to that whiteboard and say, this is how the business works. And even facilitate in large organizations, facilitating that conversation amongst groups. And then once you do that, that's how we store the data. So when you draw it on the whiteboard, it actually gets stored in your IT systems exactly that way, which is very different than what traditionally happens, right? Where this IT group that translates it into the technology and it looks nothing like that. And when, and when that scenario happens, you have this disconnect because the business thinks about the data in a certain way and tries to ask questions based upon that. But those don't always translate well and you get this friction, you get this cognitive disconnect and that causes errors and problems in the business. But if you can eliminate that, so that the way the business thinks and reasons about the data exactly matches the way IT is storing it, together you can do some much more powerful things. Hmm. I mean, what are some of the practical outcomes that you're seeing? Is it, is it really just about enabling these business people to be able to do more with what they have? Or? 
Yeah, I think there's basically three areas we, we see. There's areas where organizations are able to get to some sort of an end result right now, but it's very expensive, typically in terms of manpower and time, right? So scenarios where, yes, I can have a team of people that they go and they ask a question of data source one, two, three, etc. each time pulling down information locally, then going through some manual process to combine those together to then get an answer. You see that all the time. It's expensive and time-consuming. So by eliminating that, saying, no, all the data is together, and it's connected, and you just ask your question. You've now shortened that time span. You saved a ton of time of money. That's certainly one big area where people are realizing benefits from this. Another big one is very often there are questions people get trained not to ask, essentially. Right? Especially in your organization long enough, you, want, you start to understand that the data is siloed in certain ways. And asking questions that cross silos is expensive and time-consuming. So you start to think about, well, how can I try to solve the problem without asking those questions? Well, now we go back and say, no, no, you, you can ask those questions. Look, it's really easy to, for example, understand how weather is impacting sales. Because you can connect the weather to the location, to the transaction, to the customer, and so on. And now you can ask that question, and it's easy. So really being able to broaden people's horizons and allow them to get super creative and do and try new things. And then the third is just really agility. There's a lot of times when senior leaders go to the IT shop, and through no fault of, of the IT organization, they say, hey, I'd like to know the answer to this question. IT looks at it and goes, well, you know, the, the current technology is the way it is, and like, I have to bridge two or three data silos. So what I'll probably just do is I'll create a new data mart, a data mart essentially being like a smaller data silo that's built for a specific purpose, maybe in this case to answer that senior leader's question. It's going to take me, you know, six or seven weeks, and it's going to cost you a couple hundred thousand dollars of internal billing. Well, I need the answer, you know, in three days. In six weeks, it's, it's too late. And so those projects don't happen. But now you have the agility to answer those. So I think the combination again, of, of agility, really of shortening time to value, and really unleashing that intellectual and creative curiosity of, of the analysts and things to really explore the data and, and understand it in new ways that wasn't possible before. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think whenever, whenever you break down barriers and speed things up then you know as you say like people start doing things that they might not have envisioned before because the very fact of being able to do it faster just from a human level we start using it more you start interacting with it more and then you start you know seeing things you never saw before so it's it that makes total sense. So we've gone to data silos to data lakes to graphs to, to data marts. You know, we're, we've got all the data words. We're making this transition, and clearly, we, you know, it's not just about throwing your data in one place. It's about thinking about the relationships and putting those in the business context. I mean, where, where's the industry going now? You know, as somebody that's in the middle of this every single day and you're talking to people who are doing this, where do you see things going? I think businesses are, are headed at more towards graph. The government has actually adopted this sooner than commercial, still doing some work in both spaces. And this is a space where the government's an early adopter. They've been doing this for a little while now because of the nature of their work. Commercial, I think, is catching up. It's about risk factors, certainly. But I'm seeing more and more where, say, five years ago, I would meet with a prospect and we'd eventually talk about graph and they'd have no idea of what a graph database was or why that cares or why they should care about that. Now people are actually coming to us and saying, you know, I've got a graph problem. I have a relationship problem. I need to understand these relationships. I need, I need help doing that. So leaders are starting to become aware now through the mainstream adoption, again, through really big companies, especially like Microsoft with their Cosmos DB, the Neptune DB by the folks at Amazon. 
that yeah this is this is a commercially viable technology this is real let's start looking at this because i think also you know they're just business leaders are getting a little bit frustrated by the availability to get access to data and the the market pressures being placed on a lot of more traditional companies by the huge players like Amazon and, and BJ's and Walmart and so on are forcing people to really think long and hard about how can I do more with my data to stay competitive. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a, this is another part of that whole transition that we're seeing right now is like you move fast, you move smart or you, or you die. There's really no other way. Yeah, absolutely. While those market pressures are they're strong. They're, there's also, of course, creating opportunities, right? There's really opportunity for smaller players, even in the digital space, to do really well through, you know, personalization is a, is a big topic right now. How do I take what data I have and make a personalized customer experience? But that really requires a wide breadth of data about that customer and what they're doing on your website, what they've done in the past and who their friends are on Instagram and so on. And that requires understanding those relationships and connections. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, Clark, I, I think this has been a great discussion. I mean, I even, you know, as much as I read into stuff every day, I, I know I've, I've learned something from this. I think that, that kind of transition from old school databases to data lakes and now to the, like this, this concept of really, you know, using the interconnectivity of the data to understand it, I think is, is fascinating. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on and explain that to us. Thanks for being on the, the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I had a great time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And, and as always, you know, rate us in your, your favorite podcast app, wherever you go to find podcasts so that other people can find us and, and look for the next one in your feed. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.